Luke chapter 15, I'd like to start reading in verse 25. The word of the Lord says this. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf. Because he hath received him safe and sound, and he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore he came his father out, and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, for the truths of your word, which you relay to us through your spirit. I pray now that you would, uh, Lord, you would bless my words, and they, the, that the movement of the spirit is not because of my eloquence, it's because of your truth. And I pray, God, that you would get all the attention here tonight, that nothing would come in the way of that. I thank you, Lord, for your son, Jesus Christ, who saves us by his blood. Help us to rejoice and to be resolved to have all the more faith in that as we go away from this place. Help us now to, uh, Lord, really uh, listen and focus on your word as it is preached. In your name I pray. Amen. So you might recognize this uh, familiar parable, at least the ending of it, uh, as the parable of the prodigal son. Of course, this comes in a trilogy of parables concerning lost things. Luke 15, of course, contains the story of the lost lamb, the lost coin. And now here at the end of the chapter, from verse 11 onward, the story of the lost son, so to speak. I prefer to call this story, though, the parable of the two sons. Uh, we often refer to it as the parable of the prodigal son because that he receives the bulk of the attention, so to speak, in the story. But for me, um, it's about more than just one son. The point of the story, as I hope to show you tonight, uh, which you might have already been familiar with, but I hope to remind you, is not just about a son who runs away. If, if that's only our focus, if that's the only thing that gets attention, we've only heard half the story. It's like watching a movie and stopping it halfway through. You don't get the full thing. You don't get the resolution of what Jesus was trying to uh, show and tell in regarding this, in relaying this parable, especially when you realize who he is telling this parable to. So I just want to walk through the verses tonight and just show you each character and how they exemplify the gospel and how each movement of the story showcases a little bit more about our Heavenly Father, especially as he relays to these two sons. Of course, we know or you might be familiar with this story, but it begins in verse 11. Verse 11, it says, and he said, that is Jesus He's relaying stories, and now he's continuing with a third one. And he, and he said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. 
And he divided unto them his living. Now this is to me one of the most interesting portions of the story. And it comes right at the beginning. A young son, a young haughty son comes up to his dad and demands that he give him his inheritance now. He comes up to him and says, I don't care about you. I don't care about everything that's going on in this family. I want what's going to be given to me when you're dead. I want that now. Not when you're dead later. I don't want to wait that long. I can't wait that long, essentially, is what he's saying. Because essentially what he's saying is, you're basically dead to me anyways, so just give me now what I was going to get then. He had zero justification for uh, making any sort of demand like this. He had no ground upon which to stand. It was just him and his pride and his arrogance and his self-reliance coming up to his dad. He says, I can't wait for you to die. (laughs) It's a sad scene right off the bat. But what's most interesting, what always jumps out to me, is the fact that the father consents to this request. Did you notice that in verse uh, 12? The son, again, had zero justification to make this sort of demand of his dad. And it says at the end of verse 12, And he divided unto them his living. He consents. He does He follows the laws of inheritance, which you can find back in Deuteronomy chapter 21. And he consents to this unfounded demand. He gives him his inheritance, knowing full well perhaps what might occur. What might happen in this son's life, and he lets him go. You might say that the father dies to himself in order to show this son a lesson. But notice what happens, verse 13. It says, and not many days. So the son gets this inheritance. He goes his own way. And it says, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country. And there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, in that land. And he began to be in want. So the prodigal goes his own way. He takes this inheritance that he got from his uh, already patient father. And it says that he wastes his substance. He wastes his life, as it says in the King James, riotous living. Which is just a stand-in for all that you can imagine that a young, haughty, arrogant man who has just been given an inheritance would want to spend that wealth on. (laughs) He goes his own way. He squanders all that he had been given. He spent all. It says there in verse 14 again that we had spent all of it. He just pilfered it away. On pleasures. On perhaps buying friends. On perhaps extravagant parties. Whatever you want to imagine there. He probably spent the money on it. And such to the point where now he had no substance to rely on. When suddenly a famine strikes the land. As it says at the end of verse 14, a famine strikes his country. And it says he begins to be in want. And notice what happens. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have killed, or excuse me, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. And no man gave unto him. So remember what Jesus is trying, or who he's talking to. He's in Jewish country, 
And he's relaying a story about a prodigal son who goes his own way. And he is in such desperation to uh, feed himself to survive because he's wasted everything on riotous living again, that he actually gets a job feeding pigs. Which, of course, if you know the Jewish customs, he, uh, Jesus is already scandalizing his audience by reminding them, by even having them perhaps think of this horribly unclean idea that a prestigious Jewish son would not only pretend or proclaim that his father is dead to him, but that he could go his own way and then waste his life to the point where he's so desperate that he gets a job feeding unclean animals. But it even gets worse than that. Jesus, as we've known and remembered from the, the Gospel of Mark study, Jesus always likes to up the ante just a little bit. I imagine that's what he does by uh, the next verse when he talks about how this, this son is so desperate, even more than you think, that he almost eats where the swine are eating. He's not just amongst unclean animals. He's actually thinking that he's, he's going to satisfy himself, satiate himself with unclean dinner. <laughs> eating with the lowliest of low on the unclean totem pole. <laughs> This is how desperate he is. This is how much, uh, he, how far he has fallen. How quickly sin ravages. Of course, it doesn't ravage overnight. You have to see here, you're, what we are witnessing is sort of after all of the buildup of sin in his heart. This is all of sin having its full effect and, and full prey to his life. This type of rebellion doesn't happen overnight. It happens after gradual decision that goes against the truth, that goes against the word, that goes against what his father has said. His decision after decision has led to this moment. And now sin has its full reign in his life. And what has it left him with? Left him with nothing. He has spent all on riotous living. And now he is in such desperation, he's willing to feed himself on the husks that the swine did eat. This, to me, always makes me think about how sin always over-promises and under-delivers. It always under-delivers what it says it's going to give you. This young man thought he was going to get probably the best life now. And now he's, he's, he's thinking about trying to just survive because he wants to eat where the pigs are. And this is the moment where it says that he came to himself. Look at verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. So as he comes to his senses, finally something wakes him up. Perhaps maybe he had, was already chowing down on where the swine were eating and then he came to his senses. <laughs> he came to be aware of how far he had fallen. And then now he determines to go home. And he determines to go home and pay off his dad by working. I'm no longer to be called one of your sons. 
Hire me. Hire me that I may pay off this debt of disgrace that I have just given to you. And here is where we get to the greatest part of this parable. Because look at verse 20. The son has formulated his repentance speech. As much as that may be true or not. And then it says, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found, and they began to be merry. To me, one of the most beautiful parts of this entire story is this scene right here where the merciful father runs out to his lost son who is making his way home. The father doesn't honestly do a lot in this story. He doesn't go anywhere. He stays home. But as David Jeremiah, one of the commentators and writers, he says about this passage that you, we cannot understand this story unless we see it through this father's eyes. Eyes which have been patiently waiting for the day when his lost, stubborn son would somehow, someway come back home. But what I love is what this father does to this son. Because you have to see, this dad was justified to do just about anything he could ever want to this son. He was justified to do basically anything. He could have enslaved him. He could have hired him as one of his servants and forced him to pay off this debt of disgrace over a lifetime's worth of service. Never treating him any worse or any better than a servant. He could have exiled him. Cast him off, closed him off from the family, cut him off from having any parts of this heritage at all. He could have even stoned him. He could have put him to death for the such public and disgraceful acts that in the shame that he's brought on this family. He could have done almost anything he wanted to this this young brat, we can call him. <laughs> and what does he do? Does he reprimand him for all the things that he's done wrong? Does he berate him for all the insubordination that he has uh, uh, manifested with his actions? Does he lecture him about all the things that he has to get right and all the checklists he has to check off and all the things that he has to accomplish before he is, is brought back into the family? No, he doesn't do any of that. He doesn't even let his son finish his repentance speech. <laughs> He cuts him off in the middle of it. I love that. The father, I imagine, I imagine the son walking a long way off and the father sprinting out to get him. And the son is, you know, rehearsing his speech the whole way home. Making sure he gets it right. Making sure it sounds really good to his dad's ears. And the father is so frantic because of his love for his son that he doesn't even care so much as what he's saying. He cuts him off. But the father said to his servant, bring forth 
the best robe and put it on him. He doesn't even acknowledge what his son is trying to say to him. What mercy from this father. What patience, what grace from this father who welcomes the son home. Knowing full well that all of the guilt that he could reiterate onto him, he has already felt. This boy, he's, he's felt the brunt of the law in himself. And the father demonstrates this love that's so strong. That he's willing to set aside his dignity, his reputation in order to welcome this son home. Look again at verse 20. It says, And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Of course, you may be aware of this, but this idea that a father would run is actually a very disgraceful thing in this first century culture. Fathers didn't wear pants and suits and ties and whatnot. They wore long robes. And many of you women perhaps can relate to this. If you try to run in a long skirt, it doesn't end up well. You have to hike it up a little bit. You could fall on your face very easily. Such is what would happen if a patriarch, a father, a ruler, a nobleman of the household would try to run. If he tried to run, he would have to hike up his robe first, exposing his legs. And that's actually a very shameful, unbecoming, undignified act in the first century. And so you have this scene here of a father knowing full well the common laws, the common cultural norms of the day. A father is... A nobleman, a patriarch, a ruler of his household. He doesn't do anything to bring disgrace on his family. Yet this father is willing to be disgraced, to welcome this prodigal back home. To me, this is so evocative of the love of our Heavenly Father and the love that he has for us. The love that God has for you and me, as we read this morning during communion from Isaiah chapter 53, who took on our shame onto himself. Just like this father took on shame onto himself to welcome this prodigal home, our heavenly father takes on shame onto himself to make us his sons and his daughters. He takes on the shame that was because of our sin. This is what this father does for his son. And this is what God, the heavenly father, has done for you and for me. He's taken on sin. He's taken on, as we read in Isaiah 53. I'll just read those verses. Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5. It says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was buried for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. 
This is the disgrace that your father took on himself to welcome sinners like you and me in, back into his family. This is the love that's so strong. That is willing to be obedient as it says in Philippians chapter 2. Obedience all the way to the cross. This is the love of your father. But I love too in verses 20. Bring, uh, verses 22 through 24. After interrupting his son's repentance speech, he, he restores him. He restores this prodigal back into the family. Because instead of rejecting him or punishing him or doing any of those sorts of things, he gives him all these signs of his restoration of relationship. He gives him a kiss in verse 20, a sign of forgiveness. An embrace. He gives him a robe, which is a sign of dignity. It's a sign of his restoration to status. He gives him a ring. It's a sign of authority. It's a sign that he is welcomed back all the way into his position as a son in the family. He's not a hireling. He's not some sort of lower class person. He is all the way fully restored as a son. He gives him shoes. A sign of freedom. And gives him a party. A huge <laughs> fellowship we might say. Full of making merry it says. And as we will find out much music and dancing. It's a sign of acceptance. A sign that he has welcomed him back home. Fully restored. He's welcomed him back. Giving him the opposite of what he deserves. Again, as we said, the father could have done just about anything to this young boy. No doubt, all of the things that this young prodigal has endured and experienced, he no doubt feels heavily the weight of the law on him. And the father, what does he do? He gives him the opposite of what he deserves. There's a name for that, isn't it? It's called grace. He gives him such an incredible display of grace in this father's actions. Grace, one of my favorite um, commentators on the scriptures and writers, his name is Horatius Bonar. He's a Scottish preacher in the 1800s. And he says, grace has nothing to do with merit or claim or worthiness, but with the opposites of all of these. It is grace to the uttermost, grace without mixture, grace which knows no bounds. It is grace without terms and conditions and qualifications. I like to say that this scene especially in the gospel that we have throughout the scriptures declares to us a grace that has no fine print. Have you ever seen those car commercials where they advertise you a, or they give you a promise which seems really outlandish? Bring in your clunky old junker car and we'll give you $8,000 cash. <laughs> and you know, you know there's got to be a catch. Like it has to be, meet a certain set of criteria for them to do that. There's no way they would do that. And then at the end, they have that long block of text and the guy reading off that block of text. And you can't understand a word he is saying. He's reading all those terms and conditions. He is actually making it legal for them to do that by reading all of them, but reading them to such a degree and speed, they have no idea what those conditions are. 
So the only way you go away from it is that if I bring my car in, I can get $8,000 cash towards a new car. But there's a lot of conditions that you have to meet. There's a lot of qualifications. There's a lot of terms that have to be lived up to. You notice with the father, there's no qualifications that he gives his son before he welcomes him back as a son. There's no condition that this young prodigal has to meet before the father's like, okay, now you're my son again. He welcomes him back home with a grace that has no fine print. And I like to think that it would be like a nice Hallmark movie if it ended at that point. But like our text, the text goes on. Like we read this at the beginning of the sermon. We read from verse 25 to 32 and we read about the other son. Remember in the first verse of our text, a certain man had two sons. So far we've only heard about one and his incredible story. Let me read these verses again. Now his elder son was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. The older brother comes in from a hard day's labor. He comes out from the fields. No doubt sweat still pouring from his brow. And he comes and he finds his friends and his family all partying. They are, he heard music from outside. Like we can hear music downstairs from the teens. We can hear, he hears music and dancing outside of the house. It is a full-on celebration. And he's rightfully curious about this loud noise. And so he asks one of the servants, verse 26. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. What's going on? What's, what's causing all this noise? And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry. And would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. He's enraged. He's furious at this news. Not that his father, or excuse me, not that his brother was found. He's actually mad at his dad. He's mad that this long lost brother was now sort of the VIP, the guest of honor of this incredible party that they're having. And it feels like he wasn't invited. He just came in from the fields and it feels like they're already having a party that started without him. And now he's angry. So he's sitting outside and he's having his own party. It's a pity party. <laughs> but he's outside and the father comes out. Which is another interesting notion. Another actually point of the father bringing shame onto himself. He's the host of this incredible celebration. And the host leaves a party in progress. To go outside. And try and explain himself as if he needs any explaining as the father of the household. To this grumpy older brother. It might be considered, imagine if you don't know what's going on, and you're just one of the guests, and you see this father leave the party to go outside. You might think he's being rude. 
The father at this point doesn't really much care about that feeling. He wants to have his son back inside. The son that had been with him the whole time. And here's where we get this interesting diatribe from this older brother. And he, verse 29, said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment. And yet thou never gavest me a kid, a baby goat, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this thy son was come, which hath, la- which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. He's complaining. He's grumbling. He's griping with his father. Contending for all of his own righteousness. You notice how many times he refers to himself. All the things that I have done. That I have lived up to. All the things that I have accomplished. And you never gave anything to me. You never celebrated me. You never rewarded me. You never made me feel like your son, like you're making this lost, young, pathetic brother of mine feel like the most important person in the world. Don't you see how unfair this is? His words are heartbreaking. Because they reek with pride and self-righteousness and conceit. He's so blinded. To what's going on at this scene that he can't even celebrate. He can't even crack a smile. Or the father ever patient. And he, the father, said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me. And all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead. And is alive again and was lost. And is found. The older brother forgot that the whole time he was being dealt with in grace. He thought it was a a relationship of rewards. A relationship of being remunerated for my actions. And the father is saying, the whole time it's been of grace and all that I have is yours already. You see... This older brother had linked his hope to his performance. So the younger brother, he had performed badly. Therefore, he should get bad things. In his eyes, he had performed goodly. He had performed better. So he should get good things. And what happens when that is your paradigm for how our father works... You get frustrated by grace. You get frustrated by this act of mercy and unmerited favor being given to, in your eyes, quote, the wrong sort of people. This brother, this younger brother didn't deserve any of this. He's the wrong person you should be being gracious to. You should punish him. You should stone him. He deserves that. I'm the one that deserves the fatted calf. I'm the one that deserves all of your favor. He's irritated. He's angry, as I said, with this this act of grace towards his younger brother. It reminds me of what happens with Jonah. Remember Jonah? He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. Why? 
That's not because he's scared, even though he knows what Nineveh does. He's scared that God would actually forgive those sorts of people. He's scared that his message would cause a revival. And then when finally God gets a hold of his heart, what happens? He preaches and it causes a revival. It's almost like Jonah was like, see, I told you this was going to happen. And he gets mad. He gets frustrated. Because he thinks that Nineveh doesn't deserve that type of mercy. And Jonah is probably right. In our eyes, they don't. They had done all sorts of atrocities to all kinds of peoples all around them. Nineveh deserved to be washed away from this world. And yet God had mercy on them, gave them a preacher, a stubborn preacher, one that didn't even want to be there. And what happened? The whole city is revived. Nineveh, this violent town is made to cry out for mercy. Jonah didn't want them to have mercy. He too got frustrated by grace, being given to the wrong sort of people. People that shouldn't be getting that type of action, that type of favor. And this is, I think, the point of this story. We often, I often think that it was just the prodigal that rebelled. Both Sons were rebellious. They were both running away from the favor of this father. In their own ways. One ran physically. The other one was running in just his own sort of way. The prodigal forgot what he was given. And the pious son, the older brother, forgot what he had. Both of them forgot that their father was an ever gracious heavenly father. And this is the story. Look at verse 1 of the same chapter. Because this is sort of the context. This is the paradigm in which we have to read this story. It says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. To hear what Jesus has to say. Hear Jesus' words of gospel. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured. Saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. They meant that as a derogatory remark. They meant that to sort of slander Jesus. You're eating with these sorts of people? And Jesus goes on to say, these are the very people I have come to save. He shows them that by telling them this story. That you are like this older brother. You forgot what I have given to you already. Here he's broadcasting the very point of his ministry, which he would very soon just express. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, we have it expressed for us very clearly where he writes, or for where he declares, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which was lost. Lost sheep, lost coins, And lost sons. He's come for those sorts of possessions. Those sorts of people. He's come to reclaim the lost ones. And bring them back home. And show them that his love is so strong. That it swallows up all of their sin. And it brings them back into the fold. Into the family. Fully restored. Period. No fine print. No conditions. 
The only condition that is here that is evidenced is a sense of need. A sense of desperation. And this is where we get to, I think, the charge of the story. The point of the story is, number one, the things you do do not produce grace in your life. The things that you accomplish, your, quote, good works, they don't produce more grace in your life. This is, I think, the point that Jesus is making about this elder son and about the Pharisees. Jesus never actually really condemned the Pharisees necessarily for all of their religion. He's, most of the time he claims that it's clouded them from seeing the point. But even remember, if you remember Matthew chapter 5, he says, If you don't have a righteousness that's as, as more than the Pharisees, you can't enter into heaven. And here I think he's saying the same thing. Those things were clouding you, but they're not necessarily bad. But they don't produce grace. They don't buy favor. You can't buy favor by your religiosity, by your piety, by your spiritual disciplines. You can't buy favor by, as this younger, or excuse me, this older brother says, by never transgressing. Because it comes by faith. Grace comes by faith, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, so that it may not be by works, so that no one can boast. But which also leads me to the second thing. The things you do do not produce grace, but number two, the things you do do not prevent grace either. This is, I think, a, a truth that has taken me a while to believe in my own life. I don't know about you. But have you ever had one of those sins that you think God can't forgive and it just eats away at your heart? Well, the good thing about the gospel that Jesus declares in the scriptures is that there's no such thing that's of, of a sin that's outside of his forgiveness. The only sin that's outside of his forgiveness, as we saw in Mark chapter 3, is denying that forgiveness in your own heart. It's an unbelief in the forgiveness that Jesus has already declared to you. It's like having a box full of a million dollars and you say, no, I don't want it. That's what he's essentially saying in that parable. And the thing here is, the things you do cannot prevent that grace. There's no sin that's outside of his forgiving transaction. Of dying on the cross in your place. Which leads us to these questions. Are you running from God by resisting his goodness for you? Like the prodigal son? Or are you running from God by insisting on your own goodness to him? I'll preach on this one day, I guess. But it reminds me of the, 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 fair, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who go to the temple to pray. And remember the, the Pharisee's prayer? It reads off like a laundry list of deeds that he's accomplished. He's insisting on his own goodness to God the Father. But if you're anything like me, I think there's... 
Times when you seesaw between both of those realities. Some days you're running and trying to fabricate your own goodness. Or some days you're running and insisting on the goodness that you think that you have. When all that God wants you to do is stop running and see that he is the good one. He is the gracious one. He is the father who has waited for you to come home. Waited for you to see that he has been gracious with you all along. Why? Because he's already died to himself. Like the father. Dividing his portion with these two spoiled brat sons. Dividing the inheritance with them. Here we have this father waiting for these two sons. In the good news of the gospel, you have a heavenly father that's waiting for you. Waiting as it says in verse 6 and 7. When he cometh home, he calleth together his friends. This is the end of the story of the lost sheep. And neighbors saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety-nine just persons which need no repentance. Your heavenly Father is waiting for you to rejoice over you. When you come home, this is the best news. That he covers all of our shame. He restores us to himself as his children. We who have been to the far country and back. (laughs) He saves prodigals. He saves sinners. He has come to seek and to save the lost. I want to close with a quote. It comes... From my beloved guy, Horatius Bonar. I feel like I get along with him, even though he's Scottish, so he might be hard to understand. And I won't try and do a Scottish accent, because I can't do that. But he says here, in a book called The Story of Grace, which I highly commend to you. He says, the father, capital F, sees his prodigals in the land of famine. His eye follows them. They may have lost sight of him, but not he of them. He sends out his grace in search of them. The son of his, of his bosom comes down in quest of them. He shrinks not from entering the place of exile. He becomes a banished man for them. He lived in exile's life. He endures in exile's shame. He dies in exile's death. He is buried in an exile's tomb. All for us, the outcasts, the exiles, He takes our place of banishment that we may take his place in his father's many mansions. He stoops to our place of shame that we may rise to his place of honor and glory. This is what your heavenly father has done for you. And that is the good news.